right, this coming Tuesday, February 14th, is what holiday? Valentine's Day, yes. For those of you that are not on top of it, that's just two short days away. Less than 48 hours, of which is going to be some, a problem for some men, probably. But here are some shocking statistics from WalletHub for you to, um, that show you just how big of an event Valentine's Day is for Americans. Look at this first slide. Each year, people spend more than $25.9 billion, with a B, on Valentine's Day. It's craziness. According to statistics, people are expected to spend an average of, of approximately $193 on Valentine's Day, with, with men spending about twice as much as women. I'm not sure how that's equality. 40% of people will buy a Valentine's Day card amounting to around 145 million Valentine's Day cards getting it exchanged every February 14th. Most popular gift to spend money on is jewelry with people spending about $5.5 billion on jewelry every year. Second most paid for gift is eating out spending about $4.4 billion on food. And here's a list of the least des desired gifts if you need some help figuring out what not to buy. No tools. Men, do not buy your wife a gym membership. No sporting equipment. Ladies, don't buy, or guys, don't buy a blender. No cheesy stuffed animals. And forget about the mixtape songs. Valentine's Day was voted to be the best day of the year to propose, with as many as 9 million couples getting engaged each Valentine's Day. Very romantic. And finally, around 27.6 million Americans gave a Valentine's Day present to their dogs. 17.1 million Americans gave a Valentine's Day present to their cats, spending an estimated $1.7 billion dollars on gifts for their pets. What a waste. Needless to say, for many, they wish that special treatment and expressions of love that they receive around Valentine's Day were not just a one-time event, but something they received year-round from their Valentine. Similarly, many people view service and expressions of love for others as events. Um, they may uh, help a homeless person. They may uh, rake the lawn of an elderly neighbor. They may, uh, maybe a husband decides to do the laundry. That could be really an event of service, right? Um, for one that's never done it before. And these are nice and good things to do. Uh, usually makes us feel good for doing something nice for someone else. And honestly, there's, there's nothing wrong with doing things that you don't normally do for someone else. But oftentimes, these are events in people's lives, uh, not lifestyles. And what we're going to see tonight in Philippians chapter 2 is that believers should demonstrate love and serve others as a normal part of their lives, more and more as we grow to be more like Jesus. So if you're not already there, please turn to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation and spirit, any affection and sympathy, which when we read in our translation, it sounds like there might be some doubt as to whether or not these are true statements that Paul is writing. 
Um, but actually, if you look at the original language, it's clear it, from it being a first-class conditional sentence that there is no doubt about its truth. Really, it could be better understood to read, since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort and love. And, and Paul is arguing on the reality of those things and those facts. And Paul then co- commands the church at Philippi to complete my or fulfill my joy by being of the same mind. Notice all the language of unity in verse 2. He says, uh, the same mind, have the same love, have full accord, which is literally one souled, same souled. Be people who have a unity because of shared desires and passions and ambitions. He says, one mind. All this language of unity, because Paul's commanding us to have unity, not, not uniformity, not robots like, or machines that are all the same and behave exactly the same, but rather, within great diversity, we would have unity because of our relationship with Jesus. Now, our, our church is different than most, praise God, because of our diversity. Uh, even, even in the evangelical church world, statistics from 2020 show that only about one in five evangelical churches are multiracial. Even in churches that believe like us, it's unique to have congregations that put forth the effort and the love that it takes to have people from all sorts of different backgrounds be welcomed together. Keep in mind that Philippi was a Roman colony, was very diverse. Ex-military officials, social elites that had power and position. There were citizens who were free. There were slaves that were not. There were Gentile people. There were Jewish people. And all these people with all these different religious backgrounds, languages, social positions, different classes of people, different statuses, all these people were in Philippi and in the Philippian church. And in the Philippian culture, there was pressure to live out your life based on who you were, what your status was, what your class was, what your position was, how, where you were born, how much money you had. So if you were a part of this economic class, you should live this way. If you were, if you were a social elite, you should live this way, but not that way. And if you were a slave, of course, you were destined to live that lifestyle. There would never have been a group like the church in Roman culture where people from all different ethnic backgrounds, social classes, would have met together as one. And so if you were up here economically, you would never spend time with someone who is down here economically. If you were a Jew, you would never spend time with a Greek. If you were a social elite, you wouldn't spend time with a slave. And God was calling all believers to be countercultural in Philippi and not give in to the pressure that their society was putting on them to live that way. So in the midst of all that diversity within their church and within their culture, Paul commanded them to have unity. Why? What was the church's un- Why was the church's un- unity such a big deal to Paul? Well, if you look back to chapter, tw- I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 27, uh, the paragraph before ours, it says, Only let your, partner, your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And over and over again, throughout the whole book of Philippians, Paul challenges us to realize that how we behave inside these walls and outside these walls matters because of our testimony to a lost world. 
In fact, he, he mentions it eight times throughout the book of the Philippians. In 1.5, because of the gospel. In 1.7, it's because of the gospel. In 1.12, for the advancements of the gospel. We already mentioned 27, um, of chapter 1. In chapter 2.22, it's in the gospel. Partners in the gospel. Chapter 4, verse 3, side by side with me in the gospels. Over and over again throughout the book of Philippians, the purpose for Paul's unity and his passion is for the gospel's sake. So what is it that moves you to do what you do or don't do? What is, it, what is your motivation for how you live or don't live? What is, what is the reason you talk to and serve people that you wouldn't otherwise? For Paul, he was, live, he was motivated to live, to serve, and sacrifice because it was a matter of the gospel. The name of Jesus and his gospel were at stake, and the way he lived, he knew, made a difference. And for the world around us, this concept is completely foreign, because they are not motivated by the gospel. Other than for philanthropic feel-good reasons, really the world has little reason to give, to serve, or to sacrifice. I know when I was growing up, way back a long time ago in 1985, there was a terrible famine happening in Africa. And in an effort to raise support and, and aid to help those people who were starving, a group of well-known singers all came together to promote the aid effort and sang the song, We Are the World. I know, don't think about it. It's a terrible earworm. But for a little while, people came together to help people who were suffering. Paul says to us, who we are impacts and affects greatly what we do. Whether that's getting up early, whether that's giving extra time, giving extra money, spending time and serving people that are very different than you, perhaps even changing diapers in the nursery. So how, how is it that we're supposed to be motivated to do this? We see that in verses 3 and 4. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That each of you look not only to his own interests, which is very natural for us to do, but also to the interests of others. See, in Philippi, being humble was a negative character trait. Being humbled by someone else was also a problem for the Philippians. In fact, it was a problem to be avoided at all costs. In fact, in Philippi, deeds were done so that you would be known for being such a great and wonderful person. If you were wealthy and you built something, a store or a stadium or a building, in fact, you would have a statue made in front of it and you'd put a big label that said, so-and-so built this building on such-and-such such a date. What a wonderful person they are. In fact, archaeology, you can read about archaeologists that have dug these up. And it still happens today, right? People donate a lot of money and get their name on a building or on a park or a park bench. In fact, one of the methods that churches even use often is to buy a brick and they'll put your name on a decal on the wall signifying that you gave so much money even. In Philippi, people would do good things not because they wanted to serve them or help them, but because they wanted honor and recognition. That's how people in Philippi thought. You do nice things to get more honor. But that's not how Jesus thought and lived. 
A familiar passage, Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John 13 tells the story of Jesus with the disciples in the upper room. At the Last Supper afterward, he girded a towel, got down on his hands and knees, and he washed the disciples' feet. He wasn't forced to do this. He wasn't coerced. He didn't, didn't do it publicly. There were no cameras there, so he could post it on his social media. It was an upper room with his small group of followers done privately where no one that but his disciples would know what he did. Think of it. And the son of God got on his hands and knees and did the job that only the lowest slave of a household would do. He washed feet. And this was not an isolated event for Jesus. This was how he lived each and every day. Which is quite contrary to our leader's of our day who, when Thanksgiving comes around, they, they go to the local food shelter, they put on the apron, and they get that photo, photo op, you know, serving the mashed potatoes, and it's get so they can get that in the newspaper. It's contrary to mega church pastors, too, who drive the fancy cars, live in the big homes, maybe even have their private jet, live the life of the rich and famous, and follow the, the business model of bigger and better. And if we're not careful, we can do Things. We can do good things in the name of Jesus for the wrong reasons, even to get recognition or even some, sometimes at home to get a, a response. Men who um, want to become deacons so that they can have power in the church and make decisions. Uh, people can even serve publicly in the choir, musical drama, under the guys who are trying to show off their talents. Or husbands can buy something for their wives, hoping to get their way at home. And children who do chores only to manipulate their parents so they can, they can get their way with their parents. But it's not about how big and famous we can get, about how much respect we can get, about getting our own way, about how many people we can get to serve us, but rather it's about being a slave, Paul says where we put everyone else's needs above our own, including our wives, our husband, our neighbors, our co-workers, even that church visitor who comes late and wants to take our pew. So not only are we to humbly seek the best for others, he continues in, chapter, in verses 5 through 9. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul is cutting at the very heart of Philippian culture here. There were senators, elite people, military people, free people, citizens and slaves with no rights at all. And everyone wanted everyone else to think well of them. And at all costs, avoid having any shame be put on them. And in Roman culture, as I said before, you did and didn't do certain things because of who you were, because of your status. If you were a slave, you did all the humiliating things. If you were a senator, you didn't hang around with slaves and you didn't do anything humiliating. And you didn't do what slaves did because people knew who you were. And Paul throws a wrench into that whole system when he commands the believers to not base what they did or did not do based on the cultural norms and pressures, but 
based on how Jesus lived. And this is how he commands and encourages us to live. He says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. Service to others doesn't start with starting new techniques in our lives or something we just do at church or doing nice things around Christmas or the holidays, but rather it's a totally new way of thinking, a revolutionary mindset, one demonstrated perfectly, of course, in the life of Jesus. But notice what he says about Jesus in verses 6 and 7. Who, though he was in the form of God, notice the same phrase in verse 7, translated likeness of men. It's really the same Greek word morphe, translated form in verse 6 and likeness in verse 7. And just as a side note, the word morphe, translated form, can easily be misunderstood because in English, form refers to the, the externals. It, we say we can shape clay to the form of a pot, referring to the external of that clay. For uh, those that are old like me, we can remember the, uh, the Wonder Twins. They had those rings. They put the rings together and say, Wonder Twin powers activate in the form of, and they would say it and they would turn into that form. The problem is that this Greek word does not refer to externals, but rather to the internal or the essence. Uh, this has led to many false doctrines about Jesus saying that he really wasn't God. He was just a form or an outward expression of God. Actually, the NIV does a nice job translating verse 6 um, when it says, Who being in the very nature God did not cons- consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So verse 7 can be better understood to read, But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. It's that familiar term, doulos, slave. Paul said, this is what God is like, form of God and form of a slave. Would have been unheard of in Philippian culture. Again, gods in Philippian gods don't come down. So would certainly never come down from being a god to becoming a slave. Everyone wants to go up. No one goes down. People wanted more respect, more money, more servants. Very similar to our culture today. People are in search of the American dream. Own a house, and then your goal is to own maybe a bigger house. You want to own a car, and then maybe a second car. You want prosperity, success, more power, greater prestige, and and that our children will have it better than we did, right? But Paul gives them a completely contrary message. When you love people like Jesus the way is not up the way is down, which would have blown away the Philippians' minds. A God that comes down. Again, in their culture, everyone only grasped after honor and higher status. They sought it. They pursued it. It was their single life aspiration and goal. But look what God is like in verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Different versions have slightly different translations. The King James Version reads, though it thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The NIV says, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. And the original language carries the idea of something to be held on to, something to be grasped, something that you already have and don't want anyone to take from you. So graphs here in the ESV really carries a, a, good, a good understanding of that. 
Because people in the Philippian culture were graspers. They wanted to hold on to their honor, their status, their wealth. But Jesus was just the opposite. When he came down to earth as a baby, he was not a grasper. He did not hold on to all the rights he enjoyed of being God. He did not give up his deity, but he did give up the independent use of some of his attributes. He limited himself as a human. His glory was hidden. But the Philippians were graspers, but not Jesus. He was a giver. The Philippians would not have understood this. In fact, if you talk, talk about counterculture, this, this idea is totally opposite of what everyone in their society would have been thinking. And Paul is challenging the believers, I know what goes on around you, but that's not God and it can't be you if you want to be like Jesus. Paul specifically addressing their service in the church. He was challenging them to understand that Jesus-shaped service wasn't about them getting more recognition or more power. In fact, he would say that being a deacon is, is a service position. It's not a power position. Singing in the choir, having a part in the musical drama is not about impressing people. It's about serving. Being a pastor, contrary to what is seen in many churches across America, is not a power position. It's a service position. Jesus, God, very God, left the beauty and splendor of heaven where he was rightfully worshipped and adored. He could have stayed there, could have held on to all that he enjoyed there, but he was not a grasper. He didn't hold on to it, but rather he left it all to come to earth and be a slave. So Paul continues his description of what Jesus did in verses 7 and 8. Notice verse 7, it says, He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And notice also verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. In Philippi, you, if you were a senator or an elite, you would never, ever, ever humble yourself. You might be humbled by somebody else. If you owned a store and someone bought out your store, you would have been humbled. If you were a warrior and someone beat you in battle, you might be humbled. If you were removed from your position of power, you might be humbled. But no one ever chose to humble themselves. That would be unheard of. You would not be able to convince any self-respecting Gentile that being humble was a virtue. Being humble or humbled was a problem that you wanted to avoid at all costs. And Jesus chose to be humble, to humble himself. So how far did Jesus go to humble himself? We see that answer in verses 7 and 8. Being born in the likeness of man, the same verb is used in the next verse. Being, um, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Literally, verse 7, by becoming in the likeness of people. And in verse 8, by becoming obedient. Same verb. The number one trait of the follower of Jesus that ought to mark us is obedience. But you might ask, how far do we have to obey? Well, verse 8 tells us, Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So how far? Because we like to put limitations on how far we have to serve, don't we? I'm not, I don't want to get up that early. That's too great a sacrifice. I'm not giving that much money. I'm not willing to go there. I'm not willing to do that. That's beneath me. There was nothing that was beneath Jesus. We joke, I, I love you, but I don't love you that much. 
but sometimes we mean it. Jesus was obedient to the point of death. And not just death, but the death of a slave. Jesus did not serve as an event. He lived a life of service, of being a slave. He was born in humble circumstances. He served while he lived, and he died like a slave. In fact, a Roman citizen could not be crucified because it was too humiliating. Paul, by being a Roman citizen, had the honor of being beheaded, not crucified. But slaves, non-Roman citizens, they could be crucified. And we've talked a lot about it, and it's really too graphic to even put up on the screen for people to see. But there was no honor when you were crucified. You were up there publicly where everyone could walk by and see you. You were naked. You were not up high, but you were down low where people could yell at you, mock at you, throw things at you, spit on you. And not for a few hours in most cases, but for days it would take to die on a cross. A tortuous death designed for criminals and slaves. And when you died, there was no nice private grave. Your body was thrown in a mass grave with everybody else that was crucified. You can't imagine a more shameful, more painful, more torturous way to die than to be crucified. And that's how far Jesus obeyed all the way with no limits. So Jesus' example shows us that true obedience service has no limits Jesus' obedience took him all the way to the cross. So how far will you go in your service to others? Do your children see your service as a lifestyle? Or do they see your service as an event? For us who claim Jesus as our Lord, we need to choose to humbly obey, serve, and sacrifice for others, just like Jesus did.